As Pastor Bruce said, I want you to please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Please stand with me. And um, if you do not have your Bible with you, you can use a pew Bible. It's on page 659. Again, this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9 and going through verse 20. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. But the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Nor do you, or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name and thank you so much for your love. God, we thank you for your design, that you that you created this world with a design and that you created our relationships with a, with a purpose and an intent and a design. And that, God, that you didn't just leave us to guess, to figure things out, but you gave us your word to instruct us on how we should go. Father, I just pray that you would speak through Bruce this morning and that we would um, listen with open ears and open hearts. And God, that we would take that and that you would uh, transform our hearts and our minds. And that then we would transform our actions because of how you've changed our hearts and our minds. God, we just love you. Help us to be um, better representatives and, and better reflections of you in the world around us. In your name we pray, amen. That's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Redeemed. We're going to be looking at God's design for sex, marriage, and singleness. And as we think about that concept, I'm reminded of the story of Mike who traveled from college to a strange town to visit his new college sweetheart over the holidays. This was a little town that only had one drugstore. He thought he would stop in to buy her some candy, and as he was checking out, the pharmacist asked him why he was buying three boxes of chocolates. Mike explained, I'm visiting my girlfriend tonight at her house. And after dinner, we're going to sit out on the porch swing. And if she lets me hold her hand, I will give her a half-pound box of chocolates. If she lets me kiss her, I'll give her this one-pound box of chocolates. But if she lets me get really romantic with her, well, I'll give her this three-pound box of chocolates. Later that evening, Mike arrived at his girlfriend's house and as they sat down to eat, Mike asked if he could say the blessing before the meal. Mike started praying, and he prayed one of the most heartfelt, sincere prayers ever prayed. He prayed on and on and on. And finally he said, Amen. And when he finished, his girlfriend said, Why, Mike, I had no idea you were so religious. And Mike said, And I had no idea that your father was the local pharmacist. What you don't know can hurt you. And that's especially true when it comes to sex. We know what our culture says about sex. But do we know, do we understand what God says 
about sex. Because what you don't know can hurt you. In fact, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul asked four times, do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? He says four different times. Why? Because Paul understands. He knows how essential it is that we know as Christ followers what our Creator, what our Redeemer says about sex and sexuality. Do we know? Because what we don't know about what this this issue is in our culture so prevalent in our lives, what we don't know, what God says about it, can hurt us. As a result of not knowing what God says about sex, sexual brokenness surrounds us, and in one way or another, it affects us all. Sexual brokenness reveals our our deep need for redemption, and that's what we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means no matter what your past may be in the area of sex, or even where you are in the presence, there's always hope in Jesus Christ. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 here, Paul is writing to Christ's followers. He's writing to the church at the city of Corinth. And these Christ followers have been redeemed by the grace of God. In fact, Paul tells us a little bit about some of their past history. What they were like before Christ. He says that some of these Christ followers were adulterers. Some of them were sexually promiscuous. Some of them were even homosexuals. And that was their past before they were redeemed by the grace of God. Paul writes in verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But then, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, Paul is setting the scenario up. He's reminding them of something, and he's saying that these Christ followers had experienced the redeeming grace of God, which had cleansed their past and given them a new heart and a new start. But they continued to struggle with sexual immorality. They continued to struggle with breaking free from their past before Christ. To to struggle, if you will, with sexual sins and standing strong in a culture that worships sex. And so Paul comes to them. He writes this letter to them. And he reminds them of God's design, his perfect design for sex. And in doing so, he does something that is amazing here. He connects our bodies with God's glory. Now imagine that for a moment. Which brings us to Paul's main idea in this chapter here in 1 Corinthians 6. And I want you to see it in your notes. It's coming up on the screen. Here's his big point. Here's the big idea. Because he's basically saying, my body and God's glory, and you cannot separate the two. Since God has redeemed my body, I should glorify God with my body, not defile it through sexual immorality. That is his message in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 here this morning. God insists that your body is somehow, someway, supernaturally connected to His glory. That's powerful. In other words, what Paul wants us to know is that what you do with your body either glorifies God or it dishonors God. That's his whole point here. And as Christ followers, we've been redeemed. And we've been redeemed by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that redemption, folks, listen, it includes our bodies. Therefore, we are called to something. We are called, Paul says, to glorify God with these bodies that God has given to us, not to defile them through sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 6 here, verses 12 through 20, Paul then goes on, he tells us why 
How many of you are always asking why to stuff? I have one of my sons is always asking why. He's the one that was sick last week. You say something to him, it's always why, 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 why? Well, I got news for you. God answers the why question for us this morning on why we should not use our bodies and defile them with sexual immorality. Paul lays out for us the cultural argument for having sex outside of the bounds of marriage. And then he lays out the biblical argument for sexual purity. So are you ready? Here's the naked truth about sex. Let's look at it. Number one, like Corinth, the city of Corinth here, we live in a culture that is obsessed with sexual immorality. The city of Corinth was a city known for its rampant sexual immorality. It was a city known for sexual indulgence. It was a city, you could say, that was given over to the very worship of sex. Towering 1,500 feet above the city was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex. And, and if you might imagine this, each night the temple's 1,000 prostitutes would descend into the city and practice their trade in search of, quote, worshipers. This Greek goddess of love and sex dominated not just the skyline of the city, but it dominated the worldview of the city, of the culture. Therefore, sexual immorality, it was the norm. It was accepted in the culture of Corinth. It was highly regarded even. This is the culture that the Corinthian Christians were called out of by Jesus Christ and, get this, left in for Jesus Christ. Not too different from our own culture in which we live today. It's obvious we live in a sex Craze culture as well. A culture that also worships sex. As Peter Kreef has said, sex is the effective religion of our culture. You don't have to look very far to see that we are bombarded by sex everywhere we turn. In stores, it's in songs, it's on billboards, in movies, it's on your phone, it's on Facebook and Instagram. It's everywhere on the internet. From casual hookups and cohabitation to heterosexual sex to homosexual sex to adultery and pornography, sexual immorality, it creeps into our lives, our minds, our hearts, our marriages, our families, and even our churches. Sam Gordon put it this way in his book, hope and glory, and I quote, not only is sexual sin tolerated in any form by anyone with anyone else at any time, in any place, in any way, more than that, it is advocated. It's promoted, encouraged, and aggressively marketed through every media we can possibly think of. As a result, sexual temptation is all around us and it is prevalent in us. In his book, the whole in our holiness, Kevin DeYoung writes, if we could transport Christians from almost any other century to any of today's, quote, Christian countries in the West, I believe what would surprise them most, besides our phenomenal affluence, is how at home Christians are with sexual immorality. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't offend our consciences. In fact, unless it is really, really bad, sexual immorality seems normal, just a way of life and downright entertaining. At this point, we should probably stop and answer a question. What is sexual immorality? After all, that is one of the issues here that Paul is getting at in these two chapters. What is it? What is God's design for sex? Notice God's design for sex here. That sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. That is God's design for sex. And any sexual activity outside of marriage is a sin. It's sexual immorality. So what is that? Well, sexual immorality comes from the Greek word pornea, which immediately you're familiar. That sound has a ring to it because it's where we get our English word pornography. 
Sexual immorality covers sins of the mind. It covers sins of the heart, the eyes, and the body. It includes such, such sins as premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, and even pornography. Needless to say, God's design for sex, which again, he says, we find in the Word of God here, that sex is for marriage between one woman and one man for a lifetime. That's God's original perfect design for sex. Needless to say, that design goes completely against the worldview of our culture. To say that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman, and any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin, opens me, and more importantly, God's word, up to the charge of being not just narrow-minded, but even you're hurtful and you're hateful. But I want to show you why God's design for sex is not hateful. It is helpful. This is good for us. As Christ followers, we need to embrace God's design for sex. And we need to trust God as our creator and trust him as our redeemer that he knows what is best for our sexuality. The problem here with us just as it was a problem for these Christ followers in the church of Corinth, is that we are so tempted, and many of us, we, we subconsciously even do it, we don't even realize it, but we have embraced the mindset of our culture in this area of our lives. Instead of embracing the truth of God's Word. This was the same problem that Paul had to correct with the church at Corinth. You see, understand, these Corinthian Christians, these Christ followers, they were still living, even though they were believers in Christ, they were still falling back to their old ways. They were still living by the views and the values of their culture when it came to sexuality. They were saying, in essence, it's just sex. What's the problem? I'm free. This is what my body was made for. I was created this way, so why is it sin? Why can't I just indulge in this? And so the Apostle Paul, he calls them out and he confronts their flawed rationalization for sexual immorality in verses 12 through 14 here. Here's the deal. These same cultural arguments that these early Christ followers used are still being used today. Oh, the wording's a little bit different, but it's the same logic. And so what Paul says was very practical and it's very relevant for us here this morning. Notice the cultural argument for sexual immorality. Notice it. He comes down to two arguments that these Corinthian Christ followers were using to justify their, their way of life, if you will. The first argument is, sex outside of marriage is okay because, after all, we're free. We're free. Look what Paul says in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, when Paul says, all things are lawful for me, he is actually quoting their argument. This was the argument that these Christian Corinthians were using to justify their sexual immorality. All things are lawful for me. These Corinthian Christians were reveling in their freedom and using it to indulge in sexual immorality. And it's true. This is what is so ironic here because there is some truth in their argument. Theological truth, biblical truth here. It is true that Paul was this great champion of Christian freedom, but it was always freedom in Christ, get this, to walk worthy of Christ. 
Paul says in Galatians 5.1, It is for the freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And in verse 13, in the same chapter, Galatians 5, he goes on and says, You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. Yes, we are free in Christ. Oh, how these Corinthian Christians embrace that spirituality. I'm free in Christ. Unfortunately, they ignored the principle that Paul states so clearly in the second half of Galatians 5, verse 13, that says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Just as we're tempted to do, these Corinthian believers, they were rationalizing their freedom in Christ in order to justify their sexual immorality. Perhaps they figured that they were free to do what they wanted. After all, they were forgiven, right? Their sins were forgiven. And they were going to heaven. Christ died for all of their sins. So what's the big deal if they indulge themselves a little bit here? And that's always one of the dangers of God's grace in the gospel when it's misunderstood. When misunderstood, it's taken as a license to sin. And this was the kind of misguided thinking and rationalization that Paul challenged in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace, that the grace of God may abound? And his answer to that rhetorical question is, Certainly not. The freedom we have in Christ is given to us so that we have freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. God saved us so that we can live holy lives that shine the light of His redeeming grace to those around us, not so that we can stay enslaved to the sins that once characterized our lives before Christ. Sexual sin, it almost always begins with a rationalization of our freedom in Christ. And so Paul refutes this Anything goes argument with two statements here. They said, this was their argument, all things are lawful for me. To which Paul says in verse 12, in the second part of it, but all things are not helpful. And I will not be brought under the power of any. Now, it's interesting here what Paul does and doesn't do. He does not dismiss the idea of Christian freedom. Why? Because we are free in Christ, right? We're thankful for that. Instead, he shows us how harmful sexual sin is to everyone involved and how it gains control over those who indulge in it. Yes, sex is a good, good, good thing. It's something God made and something God gave to us to be enjoyed within the parameters of marriage. It is a beautiful thing. But take notice, it is also a powerful thing too. Sex has the power not only to please us, but it has the power to decimate us and to dominate us. And this is why Paul counters that sexual immorality is harmful, it's not helpful. Not because sex itself is bad, but because we've taken it outside of the parameters of marriage in which God has given us to us. The price of sexual sin is terribly high. In fact, no sinful behavior has more built-in problems than sexual sin. It has broken more marriages, destroyed more homes, caused more heartache, and shattered more lives. Sexual indulgence, it promises us freedom, but it proves to be controlling and then enslaving. And again, Paul says, listen, I am free in Christ, and so are you as a Christ follower. But Paul refused to allow himself to be controlled or to be enslaved by anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. No sin is more controlling and enslaving than sexual sin. The more it is indulged, the more it controls us. And the more it enslaves us. Anyone who's wrestled with sexual addiction, such as pornography, can testify just how powerful it is. Sex has a stronger grip on, on us than we even 
realize. When it comes to sexual immorality, what starts as freedom ends in bondage. That is what Paul is saying to us, just as he said to these Corinthian believers. The second argument that they used was this. Sex outside of marriage is okay because it's natural. It's natural. Look what Paul writes in verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now, Paul hasn't changed subjects from sex to eating. What he's doing again here is he's quoting back to these Corinthian Christians another argument that they use to justify their sexual immorality. Food for the stomach and stomach for the foods. That was their argument. In other words, sex is like food. Sex is a biological appetite to be satisfied, just like eating. Fulfilling one's sexual appetite is no different than fulfilling one's stomach when it gets hungry. And so here's their argument. Nobody gets bent out of shape when a hungry person heads to the refrigerator to eat. So what's the big deal then when people have casual sex in order to satisfy their sexual appetites? That's the argument. This line of thinking has not only survived throughout the centuries, but it has been circulated into the very air that we breathe by our culture today. This means our culture has a very low view of sex. And God has a very high view of sex. Our culture argues that sex is just something someone does with his or her body. They see sex simply as another bodily function that's really no different than eating. There's nothing special about it. Therefore, there's nothing worth protecting either. They don't see sex as a gift from God to be cherished and protected. It's true that food and the stomach were created by God and they were created for each other. But Paul says that there is a profound difference here between our physical appetites and our sexual appetites. Eating all-you-can-eat pancakes at IHOP and hooking up with your girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever on Friday night are not morally equal. Sex is personal. It's not just a physical act. Sex is something that involves not just our physical bodies, but our soul, everything about us. Unlike eating, sex is an act of the whole person. It's much more profound, and it touches us at a much deeper level than most of us realize. And that's part of Paul's point when he says to them, True, food is made for the stomach, and the stomach is made for food, and God will destroy them both. What's he mean by that? Well, in other words, food and stomach is only a temporary arrangement here on this earth for this life. It's true, God has no permanent plan for the belly, but he does have a permanent plan for our bodies. So what we do with our bodies matters. It matters greatly to God what we do with our bodies. You see, if there was no God, then eat, drink, for tomorrow you die, and whether you die as a virgin or whether you die as Hugh Hefner doesn't make any difference. But since God does exist, then it does make a difference what we do with our bodies. The Corinthian Christians misunderstood and even misused their sexual freedom. And as a result, they dishonored God with their bodies. We struggle with the same temptations today. And the reason we do is because people live wrongly because they believe wrongly. And so Paul tells them the truth about sex and our bodies in the rest of 1 Corinthians 6. So I hope you're getting the picture here. He confronts their 
arguments for sexual immorality, which were cultural arguments in the city of Corinth in which they lived. And these cultural arguments have made their way even into our culture today. The wording is different, but the argument and the logic is the same. And Paul now confronts that. And now he lays the groundwork for, here's why, number two, as Christ followers, we are to be characterized by sexual purity, not sexual immorality. Now, it's an interesting thing that science can tell us an awful lot of fascinating stuff about our bodies. But it doesn't have a clue about the spiritual and eternal uniqueness of our bodies. Only God's Word tells us what our bodies were created for. In fact, this word body appears seven different times in these verses here. Our bodies were created in the image of God to live in relationship with God. So God places, get this, in a culture in which we have a very low view of humanity, a low view of our bodies, God does not. He has a very high view of our bodies, which helps us to understand why God calls us to sexual purity. Notice this in your notes here. God calls us to sexual purity because our bodies matter to God. Our bodies are important to Him. And we see this truth here in verses 13 and 14. Look what he says. Look what Paul writes here. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Here's what our culture says. Your body is yours to do with as you please. And nobody should tell you differently. And if you want to indulge in sexual immorality, that is your right. That's what our culture says. But Paul says, no. The body is for the Lord. God didn't give us our body so that we could engage in whatever sexual behavior we feel like doing. Paul is going to tell us here that your body has been given to you for one reason. To be an instrument for glorifying God. Now it's obvious that our culture places a huge amount of emphasis on our bodies for all the wrong reasons. But get this, Paul says that not only is the body, our bodies are for the Lord, but notice this, the Lord is for our bodies. That is, God is not against our bodies. He's not against your body. Nor is God indifferent to our bodies. God cares about our bodies. And He cares about what we do with our bodies. In fact, our bodies matter so much to God. Did you notice what Paul says? That He will do what with our bodies? He will resurrect them one day. Woo, that's awesome, isn't it? He will resurrect our bodies from the grave just as He did Jesus' body. In fact, what Paul is saying here is radical because Paul is telling us that the resurrection of our bodies and the restoration of our bodies is God's declaration that He is for our bodies. So in a culture that has a very low view of our bodies, oh, they place emphasis on it for the wrong reasons, God has the highest view of our bodies. So God calls us to sexual, sexual purity because our bodies matter to Him. And then Paul asks three rhetorical questions to emphasize the importance of sexual purity among Christ followers. Three times Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Why? He's making his case. He's arguing that what we do with our bodies has serious ramifications. And we, as Christ followers, we need to pay attention to this. We need to take this serious. So here's the biblical argument for sexual purity. 
in a culture that is obsessed with sexual immorality. Notice the first question, do you not know? Our bodies are members of Christ. According to Paul, our spirituality and our sexuality are mysteriously intertwined. Paul rhetorically asks in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Paul wants us to know that we as Christians, we have been united to Christ by faith so that our bodies are now members of Christ. Yes, how's that happen? I don't know. It's supernatural. Something God does. But it's powerful. And once you grasp, once you begin to understand and embrace that concept, you can understand Paul's indignation when he says in verse 15, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Now the reason Paul mentions a harlot is because in the Corinthian church, what the males were doing is they were going to the temple of Aphrodite where the prostitutes were, and they were actually having sex with prostitutes, free of charge. Or they were given some token offering for it. That was the context in Corinth. But the application is no different than for our culture today. Paul is saying, do you know that when you engage in sexual immorality as a Christian, whether it's solitary sex or with the same sex or with the opposite sex, you are dragging Jesus into your sexual indulgence. Now, it's not as if Jesus is personally tainted with your sin any more than a ray of sunshine is polluted by a shining art and garbage dump. But his reputation is dirtied by our involvement in sexual sin. The biblical reality is this. Because you, having been redeemed by Jesus Christ, because you are now united to Christ by your faith in Christ, what you do to your body and what you do with your body is what you do to Christ and with Christ. So let's ask the question, what have you been doing to and with Christ this last week? We think we can be involved in sexual immorality with our bodies and somehow it will not infringe upon our relationship with God. No wonder there are so many Christians troubled by guilt and shame in our culture today. We think we can isolate this area of our lives, but that's impossible because our bodies are members of whom? Christ. The second question, Paul asks, do you not know our bodies become one flesh through sex? Paul has just told us about this special union we have with Christ through faith. And now he reminds us of the special union that takes place through sexual intercourse. Paul says in verse 16 and 17, he says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the, quote, two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. This is the power of sex. When we engage in sex, we become one flesh with that person. Which is symbolic, Paul says, of our union spiritually with Jesus Christ. This is why Paul takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. When God brought Adam and Eve together in marriage and they entered into this relationship that made them one flesh physically, emotionally, and spiritually. This is a profound insight into the nature and purpose of sex that we need to take seriously because sex unites two people in one flesh relationship. Sex creates a union far deeper than merely passing pleasure of the moment. This is why there's no such thing as, quote, casual sex. There's no such thing as inconsequential sex. You don't just casually become one flesh with someone else. Lewis Smeads put it really well in his book, Sex for Christians, and I quote, There is more to sex than meets the eye or excites the genitals. There is no such thing as casual sex. 
no matter how casual people are about it. No one can take sex out at night and put it away until he or she wants to play with it again. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his or her soul parked outside. Why? Because something unique, something powerful happens in sex that cannot be escaped. This is why God designed sex for marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And if you try to play outside of those parameters, you're going to do damage to both yourself and the person you're hooking up with. We're not meant for many partners. We're meant for one partner. Our culture, it's ironic, they talk about, quote, safe sex. But you can't put a condom on your heart and soul. And this is Paul's point when he says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Why? Because every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, which is a member of Christ. Yes, all sin, all sin is serious in God's eyes. But sexual sin is unique in that it results in becoming one flesh with the other person. And yet, sexual sins are not necessarily the worst sins. Please hear that. But they are serious sins that do damage to the core of our personhood. So if you're married here this morning, enjoy the blessings of sex in your marriage. We're going to get to that next Sunday. Paul addresses that issue next in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But if you're not married, then God's best for you. Hear that. His best for you. If you're not married, is don't have sex with anyone for any reason. Just because you're in love doesn't make it okay. And just because you're living together doesn't make it right. Even though our culture says otherwise. Yes, sex is a beautiful thing when done right. When done God's way. But it's destructive when it's done wrong. Not according to God's design. The third question Paul asks, he says, Do you not know our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Now this is a wonderfully encouraging truth about how we ought to view our bodies and express ourselves sexually. Look what Paul says in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You see, God calls us to sexual purity because as Christians, get this, this is a radical truth. Because as redeemed Christ followers, we are the temple. We are the dwelling place of the eternal God of the universe. God dwelling in our bodies transforms it into a sacred temple. But sexual immorality defiles that temple. Paul then reminds us at the end of verse 19 and 20, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Culture says, nobody has any right to tell me what to do with my body. But for Christ followers, that is far from the truth. Why? Because we belong to God. Because He first created us, and then He redeemed us. And therefore, we have no right to do whatever we want with our bodies. 
We're not the masters of our bodies anymore. We've been bought by God at a tremendous cost. The very blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. And that blood has cleansed us from sin. So how could we even think about profaning the sacrifice that purchased our salvation in defiling the place where God lives with sexual immorality? Yes, just like the city of Corinth, we live in a culture where sexual immorality is the accepted norm. But as Christ followers, I mean, we are called to something different. We are called to sexual purity. In fact, this is God's clear command to us here as Christ followers. It doesn't get any simpler than this. Notice it in your notes. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. Paul's command regarding sexual immorality is the same that Solomon gave his son in Proverbs chapter 5. Do you know what that was? The wisest man on the earth, Solomon, came to his son. He writes it out in the book of Proverbs. And here's what he had to say to his son when it comes to sexual immorality. Run as fast as you can, son. Run as fast as you can. Flee from sexual immorality because it is running after you. So run from it. And if you try to fool around with it, if you try to play with it, you are going to lose. It's inevitable. Sooner or later, you're going to lose that battle if you don't run from sexual immorality. It's interesting. God, in His Word, never tells us to stand and fight against sexual immorality. It's always flee. Run from it. Now, running won't make you morally pure. But running acknowledges something. It acknowledges the presence and the power of sexual sin that is too dangerous to mess around with. Paul ends with the call to live then for something bigger than yourself, and that is to live for God's glory. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed by God, therefore glorify God with your body. This is an amazing reality. Just think about this. God the Creator, God the Redeemer, can be glorified by the choices we make in expressing our sexuality. So don't take your body now that is a gift from God and drag it through sexual immorality. Instead, Paul exhorts us, glorify God with your body. Sexual purity takes seriously the glory of God. But it's also important to take seriously the grace of God as well. Listen, we cannot rewrite our past. And I'm sure every one of us here, we can look into our past and there are things we wish we could redo. We wish we could rewrite. We can't rewrite our past. And for some of us, that past includes sexual sin. And perhaps for some of you, it includes some very serious sexual sin. But Jesus Christ, listen to me, died for sinners in sin including serious sexual sins. Real guilt requires real forgiveness, and that is what the cross is all about. That is what we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let me leave you with two action steps, if you will, here. Notice this in your notes. God's redeeming grace for all people, repent of, and run from any and all sexual activity outside of marriage. That's the first thing, first action step. The section, second action step is to receive and rest in the forgiveness and healing that is found in Christ alone. I end where we began in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You go to verses 9 through 10, and what you see in these verses here is a warning. And this is God's warning Look what it says again. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do
Do not be deceived. In other words, Paul is telling us something. He's leaning in and he's wanting us to hear something because we are prone to be deceived by our culture when it comes to this. And he's saying, do you not know? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. It's a warning to us. And then Paul goes on and he says, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, where inherit the kingdom of God. It's not an exhaustive list, it's a sampling list. And it's a warning to us here to, as Christ followers, we better not let that characterize our lives. And then we find God's grace here in verse 11. God's grace is powerful. It's radical. And Paul says, and such were some of you. In other words, that's what you were like. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That is God's redeeming grace, and it's available to you in Jesus Christ. Listen, the grace of God can change your life, and it can redeem you wherever you have been and wherever you are right now. Your past and your present do not have to define you. And it doesn't have to be the destiny of your life. The grace of Jesus Christ can. When you humble yourself and you admit your sins and you repent, and by faith you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He can begin to do a radical work in your life. Does it change your past? Does it rewrite it? No. But He sets you on a new path with a new heart in which you now can use your body to glorify Him instead of using it to defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth about sex and sexuality. And we confess how easily we have surrendered to the lies of our culture when it comes to sexual immorality. Forgive us, Lord, and help us in the light of your truth to live differently than the culture around us. Help us to pursue sexual purity. Help us to glorify you with our bodies. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise team's going to sing a chorus here. And as they do, let me encourage you. I plead with you. Go to the Lord in prayer. If you need to confess, confess sin and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Recommit. Express your heart's desire to Use your body to glorify God, that you are going to save yourself for marriage. And then if you're already married, you are going to remain chaste, chaste, and pure. Go to the Lord in prayer as He leads you.